we are back to the story of 2 Samuel this week and continuing in this um, fascinating story about the reign and rule of David as king over all of Israel. And if you remember where last we left the story, David was on the run. Absalom, his son, had uh, usurped authority, had manipulated his way to a kingship, and in so doing had forced David out of the city, and David was on the run. And if you remember, David met some interesting people as he was moving into exile. Uh, Amongst them was Shimei, who was throwing stones at him and cursing him along the way. We, We left the story with kind of David moving out towards exile. Absalom had taken authority, had moved into the into the um, the king's dwelling place, had taken the king's concubines, and was now functioning as king over all of Israel. And now, as we kind of move to the story, right, the whole story is moving towards this impending battle that is going to happen between Absalom, who is now king over Israel, and David and his loyalists, or the army that is with him. And this morning, we, we have arrived at this battle, and I and, uh, want to take some time to just read through it together. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, and if you're saying, hey, we're missing a couple of verses, we'll go backwards too. So 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. It says, David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands commanders of hundreds, and David sent his troops, troops out, a third under the command of Joab, third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. Uh, and the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from this city. And the king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So David, by this time, has received news that Absalom and his men are marching towards them. He's sending his men out to meet them in battle. He wants to lead them, but his men say, no, you need to stay back. And the king says, I'll do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. And David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And there Israel's troops were routed by David's men. And the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside. And the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. It's a picture of utter chaos in battle. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule. Now let's just pause for a minute, right? Why on earth is Absalom riding a mule? And I don't know if there's any theological answer to this. I mean, David had earlier put his men on mules, so it seems right that he's riding a mule. But whenever I picture someone on a mule, this is not an imposing threat, right? I don't know. When I was a kid, my parents had this cockamamie idea that we would go visit the Grand Canyon. And at the Grand Canyon, they thought we would ride down to the bottom on mules. And this happened. And it, <laughs> it was not pleasant. Mules are, are, are fascinating animals. And 
they're, they're, they tell me that they're sure-footed, but it was a very narrow ridge that they walked down. There were all kinds of switchbacks, and the mules did whatever they wanted. If the mules saw something they wanted to eat over the ledge, then the mules would eat something over the ledge, no matter if I was on top of it. Now, I was riding a mule named Two Bits, and I'll never forget his name because I was petrified, right? I don't like heights that much, and I'd never ridden an animal before, let alone a mule. And we're going down this, this horrific canyon all the way down, and everyone's saying, oh, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? And I literally was screaming for my life. So much so that the leader of the mule party stopped all of the mules, summoned me to the front, and attached my mule to her mule so that I would stop whining like a little baby. And all the way down the canyon, we went on the mule. So there's no theological point to this story. Just to let you know, when I picture him on a mule, I say to myself, this story's not going to end well for Absalom, right? No, the story never ends well when you're riding on a mule. And if you've read ahead, you'll know what could have happened to me in the Grand Canyon, right? Listen, listen to this. This is terrifying. Now, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding a mule down the Grand Canyon. And as the, it's in there. Right? And as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. And he was left hanging in midair while the mule was kept going. And one of the men saw what had happened. He told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in the air in an oak tree. Joab said to the man, Who had told him this? What? You saw him? And you didn't strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out in my hands, I would have not laid hands on the king's son. And and hearing the king, he commanded us, Protect the young man, Absalom, for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden at all from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. In other words, Joab's saying, you should have killed him. I would have given you whatever you wanted. And the man's like, yeah, you'd have given me whatever you wanted. And then when the king asked who killed him, you would have said, this guy did it. And then I'd have been dead, right? That's what he's saying. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand, and he plunged them into Absalom's heart. While Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. And then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all of the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. See why you don't ride mules, even down the Grand Canyon, right? You might say, well, Adam, we look at you. You do not have hair that would get caught in an oak tree. But you don't know what I looked like when I was 14 and riding down the canyon, right? So Absalom has this horrific moment in the story. He's trying to get away on a mule. I don't even know what that looks like. And he gets caught in a tree by his hair. Now, if you read earlier in the story, his hair is a, something of a point of importance in this story. And uh, that he gets caught by his hair, uh, we'll come back to it. But there, I think there's some symbolism going on here. And he's just hanging there suspended from a tree waiting to be dealt with. And of course, Joab 
finishes him off. Three javelins through the heart. And then they take him down and they kill him and they bury him underneath a giant pile of stones. And in this we see the demise and the defeat of the rebellious king, Absalom. But to really understand how it got to this point, we have to go back just a little bit further. And we won't take time to read, but I would encourage you to read, uh, read it on your own this week. And you see some of the things that led to this moment. Really, there's three things at play here, I think. The first is the providence of God. And we really see this throughout the story, that God is doing what God wants to do. That is, that God's king and God's ultimate plan wins the day, even if for a season it seems like something else is prevailing. And this is actually incredibly good news for people like us. Because there are plenty of seasons of life where it feels like evil is prevailing and God is not. And to remember that God's providence means, and God's sovereignty, a sovereign providence really, means that God wins the battle in the ultimate is the hope we need sometimes in the midst of struggle. There are two other things at play here that the story really focuses in on. The first is that there is a group of people who David leaves behind in Jerusalem to be ambassadors and advocates for himself. Uh, It's led by a guy named Hushai. You read all the way back in chapter 15, and then we'll talk about him again a little bit here in a minute in chapter 17. And Hushai is left back really to be an advocate for David to King Absalom by trying to thwart his plans, even through subversion or giving him some bad advice, perhaps. And it's not only uh, Hushai who's left, but also Abiathar and Zadok, the priests, are left there. And then the sons of the priests, Jonathan and Ahamaz. And there's also a whole network of people who are loyalists to David who are actually going to function alongside of them to provide the means by which David can be prepared to thwart the plans and the assault of Absalom. And so how it goes down is that you might remember a guy named Ahithophel. All these names are running together, I know. You have no idea who Ahithophel is. Ahithophel was the guy who was David's most trusted advisor, and he had betrayed David and changed sides for Absalom. Remember that? We suggested he was a Judas kind of like figure. Uh, And Ahithophel is left there, and he's giving the battle advice to King Absalom, but Absalom also is calling alongside of him Hushai to give advice to him. And there's this moment where uh, Ahithophel says to Absalom, what you need to do is you need to go after David right now. Don't wait, don't give him time to rest. Send the select and the best men. And he says, I, Ahithophel, will lead the assault so that you will be safe. We'll cake out David. Everyone else will flee and this mess will all be done with. You'll be king forever. And he says, that sounds good, but I want to hear from Hushai. And Hushai says, actually, that's bad advice. What you should do is wait, and you should gather up a giant army of all the peoples of Israel to show that you are king of Israel. And you should lead the battle, Absalom, because you're the king, and you can go out and defeat David that way. And, of course, in the large scheme of things, in the end of it, King Absalom chooses Hushai's advice because it appeals to his own vanity, right? It appeals to his own ego. Yeah, I want to be king over all of Israel. I want to lead a massive army. I want to be the one who's shown victorious. And 
In so doing, he actually rejects the wisdom of Ahithophel, who actually had the advice that would have led him to be victorious. And it's good for us to pause and sometimes wonder if we pursue vanity or if we pursue pride and ego over wisdom and how often it leads to us being suspended from an oak tree. Yeah? So Hushai's advice prevails, and of course Hushai is doing it so that David has time to regroup and to gather his forces and to to analyze the battle plan. He lets uh, the priests Zadok and Abiathar know that, that Absalom is gone for this plan. And so they speak to some women, and some women run off and tell, their, tell the priest's sons, Jonathan and Ahamaz, and they are to run off and tell David, because they're outside the city, so they can't be recognized. But one of Absalom's people recognizes them. And so there's some other people in a, in a nearby town who hide them in a well and cover it with, uh, with, with straw and, and crops and, and preserve them in that way. And so there's this this whole network of people who are left in the kingdom under Absalom's reign, who are loyal to King David, and through whose advocacy and ambassadorship and allegiance to the true king set the stage in many ways, subservient to the providence and sovereignty of God, but set the stage in many ways for David's ultimate victory. Do you see it? Like, without these people, David's victory, in many ways, not possible. And, of course, the third thing, then, is that Absalom is corrupted by his own drive for pride and ego and status and significance. It's why I think the story ends the way it does, with him caught in a tree by his hair, because it was Absalom's appearance. He was the most handsome of all men, and, and the way they would describe his handsomeness was always with his hair, and it weighed, his hair weighed, like they kept talking about how much it weighed and how much it was worth, and he'd have to cut it from time to time because there was so much and so marvelous, and at the end of days, it's this hair, this ego, this status that is his demise, right? And how often for us, too, that our own pursuit of significance, our own pursuit of our own conquests, ends in being suspended between heaven and earth from some proverbial oak tree. But before we move on, let's stop back and, and, and talk about Hushai and Zadok and Abiathar and Jonathan and Ahimez and the women. I mean, there was all kinds of different people involved in this, and they had all kinds of different roles, and, and, and each of them was significant, and each of them was taking great risks uh, in, in placing their allegiance to David, and it caused me to stop and think this week and to really ask myself a hard question, and that is, if I was trying to leave with David as Hushai was, and David said, no, I want you to stay here and advocate for me, how would I respond to that? And um, I don't know if you'll think less of me, but my response was, I'm not sure that I would have stayed. I might have said, yeah, I'll stay, and then I would have went somewhere else, you know. Uh, or I might have said, no, and there's no way I'm staying here. I know what happens to people who are loyal to those. And yet, these men and these women stay and at great risk to their own livelihood are completely loyal 
to the true king. And in many ways, this sets up a conversation for us about what discipleship looks like in our broken world. In a world that is, in many ways, ruled by false kings and queens. And we've been called to be people who stand as ambassadors to the true king. How do we live? What choices do we make? Where does our allegiance lie? What does life look like when rubber, when rubber meets the road, right? Well, we need to pause that and get back to it in a minute. Because the truth of the matter, I think, in this story is that there's something quite bigger happening than really asking the moral question of, do you sometimes get caught up in your own vanity and your own ego and your own pursuit, and in so doing, leave yourself exposed uh, and conquered in many ways? These, of course, are important questions. But there's something bigger in the grand scheme of things, in the grand story that God is telling uh, in the scriptures and in the world. And that is, I think, that Absalom is what the Bible calls Antichrist, right? Absalom is not just representative, but is what the Bible calls Antichrist. Now, we need to pause and understand what that means and what we're talking about here. Many of us in growing up in the church have heard of and have known of the reality that at the end of days, there is to be a great battle between Christ and Antichrist. And ultimately, that Christ, when he returns, will be victorious. And we believe that is true, but we also believe that the scriptures teach us that Antichrist is not just one person, but that there is many Antichrists throughout history that ultimately lead to this one last and final Great reality. It's why in the book of 1 John, which is the only book of the Bible where the term Antichrist is used, it's used in the plural, not the singular. Uh, and the word Antichrist is used to say that anything that, is not, that, is not, um, that does not embrace Jesus as the Christ, right? Does not embrace Jesus as the true king. That is in opposition to the Father and to Jesus. This is Antichrist or spirit of Antichrist. And, and to, to, to kind of get deeper into understanding what's really going on here, we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, as so many things do in understanding them in the story of God. You remember in the Garden of Eden, the, the perfection of creation, the rebelliousness of man, and the separation between God and man that results from it. And amongst the curses that God institutes in the world in response to the, the sinfulness of man, is a curse on the serpent who was the deceiver. You remember this? And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which becomes a pretty critical passage of Scripture in understanding the rest of history, especially history in opposition to God, it says that God will put enmity between the woman and the serpent, He will put enmity between the seed of the woman, that is the lineage, the offspring of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, that is the offspring of the serpent, or what the New Testament would call Antichrist. And so there's this idea of a lineage and a cosmic battle that is constantly ongoing between the seed of God, God's anointed, and the seed of the serpent, the, the reality of Antichrist. And there's this constant battle. So a, a few examples that you can see in the scriptures is, for instance, Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? Pharaoh would be a seed of the serpent, right? A, a picture of Antichrist. How do we know this? 
because he's trying to kill off a whole generation uh, of, of Israelites and trying to, 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 uh, to oppose in that way and has a heart that's hardened towards God. And perhaps even more overt a uh, picture of Antichrist would be Herod. Remember the story of Herod in the opening chapters of uh, the Gospels, where Herod, of course, is so opposed to the, the reality that a son of God is on the scene, that a Messiah is born, that he wipes out everyone two years and under so that the Messiah will be gone, so that he can reign. And in these two pictures, we see the, this reality of the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And I would suggest to you that David and Absalom are yet another picture of that very thing. Absalom, a seed of the serpent. David, a seed of the woman. A battle that is raging. Now, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, the seed of the serpent, or the serpent, will strike at the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So this idea that the seed of the serpent, or Antichrist, that which is in opposition to God, is going to have continual seeming victories along the way, striking at the heel of God's anointed. But that in ultimate reality, it's the seed of the woman, God's anointed, who is going to crush the head, not only of the seed of the serpent, but the serpent itself. Does this make sense? You understand where I'm, where I'm, where I'm going with this? And so we see in Absalom, once again, the reality that yes, for a time, that which is evil in this world grabs at the heel of God's anointed and seems like it has victory. But it is only temporary for the coming crushing of the head that exists. And we see even in Absalom's death and his burial, the true nature of him being a cursed figure a seed of the serpent. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22, I think, that though the one who deserves to be excommunicated, the one who is guilty of murder and these other things, guilty of these, these horrific crimes, is to be hung on a tree because the one who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. And you should not let him hang on the tree through the rest of the night, but you should take him down and bury him that day so the stain of his existence doesn't corrupt the people of God. You hear that? And what do we have in the story of Absalom? A man hung on a tree who is not left to hung, but dealt with and buried that day because Joab sees the opportunity that it has to corrupt the whole people of God, even though David would prefer, we see another failure of David, David would prefer him to be rescued and saved. And then look how he's buried. Cast under a pit of stones, of course, is the idea of being stoned, stoned to death, another, uh, another means of being punished for blasphemous behavior. Uh, but also picture of sort of being separated from that which belongs to God. Do you remember Achan in Joshua chapter 7 who um, does wrong by God by taking that which, that, uh, which he was told not to take in, in uh, the battle that, w- that they had won. And of course, Achan has said he's buried under a pile of rocks or stones. And then the very next chapter, in chapter 8 of Joshua, the king of Ai is both hung on a tree and buried under a pile of stones. It's this idea of those in opposition, they are becoming fully separated 
from the people of God so that they can no longer tarnish that which belongs to God. And we have this picture of what's happening to Absalom in the cosmic reality of things. And so friends, we pause and we say, because I know that there are many of you and many who will listen to this later, who are really in the midst of significant struggle. And it really feels like the grab of that which is evil has done far worse than striking the heel of God's anointed. Doesn't it? It feels like there's victory. It feels like there's reign for evil in our world or in our lives sometimes. And it's stories like this that remind us that the mule that carries evil in the world is going to pass along while evil is left suspended so that God can deal with it as He always has intended. That there is hope for you. That that which bogs you down and that which seems to have won victory over you, in fact, is nothing but a temporary foe. And of course, this story of Absalom not only points to this picture of Antichrist versus God's anointed, but it points to the very way in which the head of the serpent is and was and will be finally crushed by our ultimate king, Jesus who is not just the one who throws javelins through the heart of a suspended foe, but Jesus himself enables victory over evil in our world by taking on the curse and thereby defeating death. What's fascinating about Jesus is he's not only the king who waits for victory in the town outside, he actually comes and takes the place of those who deserve to be cursed by God. And how does he do it? He hangs on a tree, Galatians chapter 3 tells us. Galatians 3 says, Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. And Jesus has removed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse himself. Or Paul would say to the Second Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be rescued by him. Jesus becomes the curse in order to defeat the fullness of his curse. And how is he buried, the gospel writers tell us? Behind a large stone. Yeah? As if victory was finally won for the powers of evil. But it's in his resurrection that God announces that he is the rightful king. Paul would say to the Ephesians that God has placed anything beneath him. That every power and authority is beneath the feet of Christ in this age and in the age to come. This is what we as New Testament people, as followers of Jesus, are meant to see in this reality. Not just that God is going to be victorious over our enemies, but that God is victorious over our enemies by taking on the curse that we ourselves deserved in order to welcome us back into his family. The glory and the grace and the mercy of God are beyond our comprehension. But how can it be that Paul would write to the church at Ephesus 
that everything has, placed, has been placed beneath Christ, that He is above all things in this age and the age to come, how do, we, how do we put that with what we experience in life? Because if we place those things side by side, sometimes it really feels like in our life that isn't the reality, right? We experience sickness, we experience death, we experience the loss of people close to us, we experience struggle and strife in this life. How can it be that the one who we acknowledge as true king has actually been placed in control of all things? And the writer to Hebrews lets us in on a little secret in Hebrews chapter 2. He says, yes, everything has been placed beneath Jesus, but we do not yet see it. That's what the writer to Hebrews says. In other words, that we live in this already but not yet reality where Jesus is the king of all things and we know it and we embrace it and we taste it in part, but we do not yet experience it in its fullness in this life. And so we ask the question, why? And the answer is the kindness and the patience of God that everyone would be welcomed into the family of God. That God delays not so that you and I would experience more pain, but so that more people would experience the life that he calls them to, right? It's why he doesn't conquer Jericho, but walks around it seven times, right? There's not some holy mystery to that. The holy mystery is, I'm giving you every last chance to embrace the true king. And so then what is he asking of you and me as we live in this mess? We go all the way back to guys like Hushai and Abiathar and Zadok and the unnamed women or the husband and wife who preserved Jonathan and Ahimez in their well. And we say, this is what God has called you and me to in this world now. To be people who are ambassadors and advocates for the true king while we live in this exile rule of a false king and false queens. To be people who are willing to be loyal and have allegiance to the true king and to advocate for the true king and to be ambassadors for the true king and to subvert the efforts of evil in our world so that more and more people would join in to the kingdom that God is building and advancing in our world. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, the gospel will be preached in all the world as a testimony, and then the end will come. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he says in Matthew's Gospel, as you are going, make disciples of all people, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That this is what we are called to do. It is challenging to be Hushai in Jerusalem when Absalom is king. And it is challenging for you to be loyal to Christ where you live when Christ is being patient that more people would come into his kingdom. And we do not see his full reign now. But this is what he's calling us to. 
We would like to be escapists, right? Jesus says to his disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come right now, but rest assured that I'm preparing a place for you. When I come back, I will have you and I will take you with me. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking in that moment, we would choose to go with you, right? He says, I need you to stay. And Hushai says to David, I'm coming with you. And David says, I need you to stay. And the man who is with all kinds of demons and the Gadarenes and is rescued by Jesus says, I want to come with you. And Jesus says, I need you to stay. And we who long for the full reign of Jesus and not the pain of being his ambassadors now, hear the gentle and yet firm words of Jesus this morning. I need you to stay. You may be a Hushai type influencer or a husband and wife type safe house or a, an unnamed woman who is a courier and ambassador or, or the priests or the, the sons of the priests or whoever you are, take whichever name you want in this and know your part in the great and final victory of Jesus is critical to the story. That yes, Jesus is coming back. And he is coming on a stallion and it is white, right? Anyone, I heard this, someone, someone say this one time. Anyone who is coming to battle dressed all in white, you should be terrified. Because they're not planning to get dirty, right? And so the, the victory is assured. Jesus is coming in all white on a white stallion. The enemy's on a mule and he's got long hair. He's going to be caught in the tree. We understand how this all ends. Our job is to be faithful in Jerusalem advancing the cause of the king, pleading with people that Absalom is not the real king, but Jesus is, right? That Absalom is not the real king, but David is. That, that, that materialism or the American dream or the advancement of self or stuff or whatever it is is not the real king, but Jesus is. By our life and by our passion and through our words and through our choices, advocating and being ambassadors for the true king so that when the king comes to crush all that is evil, his kingdom is far greater and far fuller than even we could imagine. This is our job. This is what he's called us to. And he knows that we feel like we are not up for the challenge. And yet, as I often try to remind people, and first and foremost remind myself, God believes in you far more than you believe in yourself. He has chosen you, and he does not make mistakes. You live where you live because God knew he needed an advocate on that street. And you were the right choice. You work where you work, not because it's a perfect career for you, and it may well be, and we praise God for that, but because God needed an ambassador in that office place, and you were the right choice. You are in the spheres of influence you are in because God needed advocates and ambassadors in all of those places. He needed someone who would not just sit by and say, it's oh, live however you want, be allegiant to whatever you want, but would declare in their life and in their obedience that there is a true king and that we should be loyal and allegiant to it. And he is coming back and once and for all, all things will be in submission 
to him. He needs Hushai, and he needs Zadok, and he needs Abiathar, and he needs Jonathan and Ahamaz, and he needs unnamed women and unnamed men, and they are us. Will we be faithful to the true king? Can I pray with you?